This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Study after study in the last quarter century has revealed that American Christians increasingly don't read their Bibles. They don't engage their Bibles, and they don't know their Bibles. It is obvious we are living in a post-biblically literate culture. So he talks about some of the things in the culture among unbelievers and among believers that, uh, that are unknown that in generations before people would have known. Uh, so he talks about Bible literacy, and then he talks about Bible reading, devotion, application, that kind of thing. He says, in a recent Lifeway research study, we learned the following about Bible reading habits among church attendees. Uh, they indicated that they read their Bible as follows. 19% of this group, let's call it us, we're an average church. Where these, are, these are average evangelicals, so this is, I assume this, this probably would reflect us as well as average Christian church. 19% of those surveyed read their Bible daily. Doesn't mean they've never missed a day, but it's a daily habit. 19%, well, that's one in five. 26% read it a few times a week. 14% read once a week. 22% read at least once a month, but not once a week. So that would be three times or less uh, per month. And 18% never, rarely read their Bible, except maybe we're about to have Bible reading. I'm about to read a section. That doesn't count. On their own, they never read their Bible. So here's the survey. Of, of, of an average church, that's us. Of the average church, one in five of us in the room read essentially daily. One in five of us never read the Bible. Never, except here and you know, maybe some random occasion, never read the Bible. Uh, for, so, and 45% would read a few times a week to daily. So of that number, if we combine the first two, we could say 45% read a few times a week to daily. It's a regular part of the, our lives. So almost half of us, a regular part of our lives would read our Bible, and that could produce growth in our lives for sure. Um, and then uh, 40%, if we combine the bottom two, 40% read three times a month or less. So one in five never, and 40% three times a month or less. And uh, those are the studies. So he goes on to take the data and say what they learned from the data about spiritual growth. And then this was kind of his concluding point. <clears throat> Excuse me. When we compiled all the data from our most recent study on Bible engagement, we found this maximum this maxim to be true. This is the summary statement, because I asked a lot of questions about spiritual life and growth as well. This is the summary statement. Engaging the Bible impacts one's spiritual maturity more than any other discipleship attribute. In fact, reading the Bible topped our list of things we found impacting spiritual maturity among all other things. Engaging the Bible impacts one's spiritual maturity more than any other discipleship attribute. I believe that, not because Lifeway did a survey. Uh, Thankful they did. I believe that because I think that's what the Scripture teaches. And that's what we're going to look at today. That if there was one thing any of us could do, or corporately we could do as a church, that would help us in the new year and for the rest of our lives grow, that would help us know Jesus better, that would help us walk in his grace better, that would help us obey him, that would help us uh, live a life uh, that's honoring to him. If there's any one thing we could do that would help in that, I don't think there's anything 
that would be, make a greater contribution than Bible engagement. And I'm using the word engagement that they used intentionally and not just reading, but engagement. I'll, talk why in, I'll say why in a minute. So nothing makes a bigger change in our lives than that. And the passage I want to look at today is in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, where I think uh, Paul makes this point very clear to Timothy about the Scripture. So what we're going to talk about in these few weeks is today I just want to talk about, answer the question, why engage the Bible? I just want to give some reasons, um, and I also want to start with the diagnosis that, hey, look, if you think you're the only person in the church that doesn't read the Bible, uh, you've got good company. Now, we'd like a year from now that company to be far smaller, but you, there's plenty of people in the church that don't read the Bible at all, and there's plenty of people that read daily, and, there's, there's, and most of us are you know, semi-regular. That's probably the reality. But, but, uh, but the Bible has, but I want to lay out from this passage reasons that might inspire our hearts to want to engage and know God better through engaging the scripture. So this is what Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. These are some of his last words. This is the end of Paul's ministry in his life. And these are some of the last things he, he says, he writes. Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, he's speaking to Timothy, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Let's pray. God, we pray that through your scripture, which is breathed out by you, we just read. We pray that through your scripture, you would speak to us today. We ask that you would expand our heart and our vision for you. We pray that you would convict us where necessary, and we pray that you would draw us to yourself uh, and, and enable and empower us to understand and respond to your word. And I pray this, that you would give all of us an appetite for your word, a desire, a longing that we might engage your word, that we might read and hear and respond and meditate, that we might engage you through your word and that you would make us complete and competent for every work that you've called us to do, whether in the work, in, the, in our work, in our home, in our church, in our personal life, wherever it may be. We pray that you would equip us, and we need help. So, Lord, we just want to humble ourselves and say that many of us haven't engaged your word, and we just pray today that you'd help us, that you'd great your kindness would lead us to repentance, and that you'd give us faith today to engage you afresh. Pray that you would speak through me as we look at this and give us all ears to hear in these next few weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, here's what the context. Uh, Paul is telling Timothy, he's, he's, Timothy's a young pastor. <clears throat> Paul's coaching him, training him, helping him. And he's basically telling him, look, things are bad and bad people are going to only get worse. You're being opposed. False doctrine is being taught. People are living lifestyles that, that aren't honoring to the Lord and the culture and that sort of thing. It's only going to get worse. Verse 14, but as for you, So Timothy, you're a follower of Jesus, you're a believer. The culture is getting worse, and and imposters and false teachers and opponents, even in the church, are going to get worse. But you know what? As for you, this is what I want you to do. Verse 14, he says, As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And then he goes on to say, you know how the sacred script, sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation. From childhood, you've been exposed to them. So he's saying, continue in what you learned since you were a little boy. Continue in the scripture. And the first thing I want to talk about today is just continuing in the word. That's what Paul tells him. Let me encourage you, if you've got a radical New Year's resolution, you've never been a Bible reader, and you're going to read it cover to cover four times by March, just settle down, okay? Take a deep breath, uh, and let me give you a less glorious, less amazing goal. Continue in the Word. That's the goal. Now, if you've never read it, then start. But if you've ever read it, just continue. The Bible, we we just looked at how God spoke to the seven churches in Revelation. The Bible is all about long-term, walking with the Lord long-term. The Bible's not really about just amazing events in our lives where we just do heroic exploits on a daily basis. We're like gospel superheroes just doing incredible. No, the Bible's just like day in and day out. Depend on the Lord, lean on the Lord, feast on his grace, celebrate his gospel. Take one step at a time. Baby steps to the Bible, baby steps open up the Bible, baby steps read the Bible. It's very, it's just simple day in and day out. And so he's telling him here, Timothy, look, just continue. Just stay with the word. Just keep walking in the same direction. Just stay on the path. Because if we don't continue, we'll drift. There's two options. We continue or we drift. And nobody wakes up one day and says, whoa, I'm living in scandalous rebellion. I used to be a serious believer. Now I'm living in scandalous rebellion opposed to the Lord. Nobody wakes up that way. It's a drift. And it's a drift when we discontinue being in the word. When we discontinue, our hearts will drift. But he says, just continue. Continue in what you have learned. Stay the course. Keep going. Endurance, perseverance, day after day. It's not exciting. It's not glorious. People aren't showing up for a conference on, here's what the conference is called. Continue. Nobody goes to that conference. We go to breakthrough. You know, we, th- These are the kind of things, uh, the conferences we go to. But the Bible's oftentimes not about breakthrough. The Bible's about continue. And that's what he says, continue in what you have learned. Continue in what you learned. And he says, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. Now, we find out that it's his mom and his grandmother earlier. His mom and his grandmother are mentioned as those who taught him the word. And so this is a very interesting argument Paul makes here. It's one that I would be very hesitant to make, and if Paul didn't make it, I would never say what I'm about to say. But 
his point is, look, you've been raised up in the Bible. Your mama taught you the Bible. Now just stay that course. He makes this, remember who taught you and what she was like. And then remember Paul who led her to the Lord, uh, who, led, who led him as well. Remember that. Um, this is something, if you are in your teens or your 20s, and you've been raised in the church, uh, statistically, uh, your, your statistical probability of continuing is dropping. Many, many people grow up and bail out on uh, participation when they hit their college years or older, bail out on participation in the life of the church and, and, and often bail out in their walk with the Lord. They, they no longer continue. And, and the argument that Paul is making is, you know what, remember who taught you and follow their way. In a book called Taking God at His Word, <clears throat> Kevin DeYoung writes about this. So I'm going to read a little bit of a long quote here. It's not theological or it's not dense. It's, it's easy reading. But I'm going to read a little bit of a long quote here. If you're a teenager or you're in college age or you're college age or you're even later in your 20s and you were raised in the church, listen to these words. I think this is helpful. He says, so in one way or another, Paul's exhortation to Timothy is God's exhortation to us. Remember who led you to faith. Remember who told you the gospel. Remember who first taught you the Bible. For Timothy, this meant Paul to some extent, and more significantly, his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Paul is urging this young pastor to stick with the Bible and stick with the one true gospel because he learned them from his Grammy and from his mama. We don't often reason this way, but we should. Before chucking the faith you were taught as a child, think about those from whom you learned it. I went to a middle-of-the-road Christian college where the religion professors were often liberal. I saw many of my classmates have their faith deconstructed and never built up again in a healthy way. When people ask me why I didn't go down the same path, the best answer I have, besides noting the grace of God, is I trusted my parents and my upbringing more than my professors. I trusted my parents and my upbringing more than my professors. He was at a Christian college, by the way, with, with liberal professors. Uh, I had doubts as a college student. There were new questions I didn't know how to answer. But what kept me anchored was confidence in what I'd learned as a child and in those from whom I had learned it. Obviously, not everyone is blessed to grow up with good parents and good churches. But this doesn't make Paul's command to Timothy any less appropriate for those of us who did. Think of your Sunday school teachers. Think of your youth group leaders. Think of your pastors. Think of your dad. Think of your grandparents. Think of your mom. Did they not have your best interest at heart? Did they not love you? <clears throat> Were they imposters? Were they wrong in everything they stood for? Is it reasonable for you to conclude that those who came before you, those who taught you to trust the Bible, those who have more experience and probably more wisdom than you, that suddenly they are benighted morons? Are they deserving of your cynicism, your rejection, your scorn? Parents and pastors aren't perfect, not even the really good ones. Paul is not saying that your mentors must be followed at all costs. But here's the point. 
And it's very appropriate for teens and 20-somethings who like to question every authority except their own. Before you leave behind what you used to believe about the Bible, consider who taught you to believe what you used to believe about the Bible. I remember on a conference panel someone asking John Piper, who's a pastor and a theologian, why do you conclude inerrancy is true? That is, the Bible is without error. John Piper, why do you conclude the Bible is without error? The first thing out of his mouth surprised everyone, because my mama told me it's true. Yet that wasn't a throwaway line or a glib remark crafted for effect. Piper was capturing something deeply true in many of our lives and deeply biblical. It's not necessarily a sign of growth to move past the faith of your childhood and not necessarily a weakness to believe the same thing throughout your whole life. What an inestimable privilege to be acquainted from childhood with the sacred writings. The ultimate reason for Timothy to stick with the scripture goes far beyond Lois and Eunice, but at their feet is where he first learned to trust the word of God, which is no small thing, and not to be tossed aside for anything in the world. That's two pages of wisdom. I never read it. That may be the longest quote I ever read in a sermon. That's two pages of wisdom. There are reasons to trust the authority of the Bible that go way beyond your mama told you so. Okay, let me say that. But what he's saying and what he's saying to Timothy is very helpful. I mean, there's credible, uh, objective reasons that the scriptures are reliable. But one argument that he uses here is what he says, remember the ones who taught you. Look at their life, look at their character, and continue in the sacred writings which you were initially taught. Continue in them. Continue in the Word. As we start this new year, we have all kinds of perhaps vision and look for reading plans and that sort of thing. I'm going to put something on the city this afternoon. I hope I'll do that this afternoon because I said I would. Uh, I'm going to put something up to help you if you're looking for a reading plan, uh, an article to link to that will help you uh, uh, do that if you would like to. Uh, do that in case you're looking to continue. But maybe you wanted to start this year reading the Bible. Maybe you've already blown it. I don't know what day we're on, but you're, you're in and you've, you've already blown it. Hey, just continue. Don't worry. Don't get pressured by the dates on the calendar. And am I going to finish my plan? Just continue. Just go home and read today. Just read tonight. Read tomorrow morning. Just continue in it. Two primary reasons to continue in God's word in this passage are its source, the source of God's word, and its purpose. This is what he tells in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the first reason he tells Timothy to continue in the word, besides you learned it and look at the fruit of who you learned it in your parents, in your mom, your grandmother, and in Paul, besides looking there, you realize that it's breathed out by God. This is a, this is a very good translation. Sometimes it used to say all scripture is inspired, but that's kind of weak in our language. If you think about inspired, um, a movie could be inspiring, a painting could be inspiring, um, an act of sacrifice could be inspiring, a song or a piece of music could be inspiring, and that'd be a way to use that. It, it resonates with me. I'm inspired to, to, towards goodness and, and, uh, or something about beauty and its truth resonated with me. So, 
So inspiring can be something that happens to us in all forms of art and experience in life. But that's not really what he's saying here. He's saying literally breathed out by God. It's a compound word that combines breath and God. And so the word is, they they just translate it, not inspired. The ESV translated is breathed out by God. Scripture is breathed out by God. Now note this, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's very important when we think about the authority of Scripture. Um, Some of the arguments that are going around nowadays that have to do with uh, particularly sexuality and gender issues, sometimes an argument is made that Jesus doesn't speak to a particular issue that maybe Paul or the Old Testament speaks to. And so since Jesus doesn't address it, it's not very important or something like that. Well, the Scripture doesn't say the words of Jesus are inspired, uh, that the red letters are inspired and everything else is secondary. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that the teaching of Jesus when he is speaking has more authority than what we're reading right now, the teaching of Paul, because all of the words of the Bible are breathed out by God regardless of who delivered them. Now, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He is the word in the flesh. But it's not that his words are to be compared with other words of the Bible, and some are breathed out by God and authoritative, and some aren't. Scripture here says all Scripture, all of the sacred writings of the Bible, are breathed out by God. Breathed out. The thought is not that men wrote them and then God just sort of breathed and gave them authority. He just kind of stamped them. Rather, the Word of God, its origin is God that it is breathed, that it is literally his word, that it is literally his speaking to us. Scripture originated in his mind and was communicated from him through human authors using their personality, their history, their context, their background, but it was from him. It is spoken so that it is really the word of God. It originates with him. Now, we think about words or we think about speaking, but God's word in speaking is different than ours. It is different. Ours is compared, we can compare our human speech to God's speech, but God's speech is different. God's speech, when he breathes out words, they have power. They have power to create. They have power to create. Psalm 33, 6 says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host, all the stars and planets. So when God speaks, there is a creative ability from his word that he can speak, and out of nothing, something happens. His word carries a power. They don't merely give information. The Word of God, the Scripture, isn't merely informing our minds. When we read the Bible, it's not just giving us information. It's giving us information, but it's doing much more than that. It has power to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. God accomplishes His purposes through His speech. So it is the breathed-out Word of God that is going to accomplish something. It's going to do work. The Bible is going to do work in transforming his people. I can't remember, but I read someone that said something great this week. He said that the Scripture doesn't just transfer information. The purpose, the purpose of the Scripture is not transfer of information. It's transformation. That'll preach. That's pretty good. I don't know how he thought that up. I thought, that's pretty good. I wish I could come up with those clever things, because that's good. The Bible's not just transfer of information. It's transformation. And so it has the power to 
create new life. The Word of God has the power, empowered by the Spirit, to make a dead heart come alive. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, the truth of the Bible, the Bible is all about the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he came and that he died for our sins. We are all off with God because we're out of sync. We've been disobedient. We've rebelled against his authority. Uh, We have sinned. And so there must be payment for our sin. And Jesus came, God himself came to pay for our sin. And that's why Jesus dies on the cross. He takes our sins upon him. He's buried and he's raised on the third day. That is good news. That's from the Bible. And when that is preached and taught from the scripture, that has the power to give new life, to take a dead heart and spiritually and start it beating, to take blinded eyes and open them up. The Bible has the power to create. It has the power to sustain. Hebrews 1 says that the universe is upheld. It is sustained. It continues by the word of his power. God's word not only creates, but sustains the entire universe. He reveals himself by his word. He changes our thinking. Because it's the God-breathed word, we can listen to it, we can read it, we can think about it, we can respond to it and apply it, but as we hear it, it can change our mind. It can change our heart. You know, many of us, if we're honest, we say, well, I don't really have an, you prayed for an appetite. I don't really have an appetite for the scripture. I mean, it's kind of boring to me at points, you know, I don't, it's just sort of, I'm not really into the Bible, but many of us might say that. I, I just, you know, I respect those who are, no, I should be, but truth be told, I'm just not. Here's the thing. The Bible has the power to create the appetite for the Bible by exposure to the Bible. So if you eat food, you get, you get, you're like not hungry. You go to the buffet you eat, and, and you want to get your money's worth, so you eat till you can eat no more, and then you're done. You don't want to eat anymore. The Bible doesn't work that way. The more you read it, the more you meditate, the more you apply it, the hungrier you get. Now, there's a, there's a sustaining joy and satisfaction in it, but we get hungrier. And so I don't have an appetite for the Bible. might be because the God-breathed word is not speaking to my heart and changing my mind and stirring my affections, and it has power. It's breathed out by God and has power to change me. So I may not have an appetite because I'm not being exposed to it. Maybe. And, and, the, and the Lord does give us, uh, give us an appetite for his word. So the Bible doesn't... The Bible, it's, it's not a collection of sayings that help us live better lives. It's not just like, these are some nice thoughts. So just read these sort of nice thoughts and have a better life. Reading the Bible, it's also not a means to cause God or sort of force him to do something for us. So it's not like, well, if I read the Bible, that's a good work, and then God will bless me because I did this good work. It's not that either. So it's not just nice sayings which make life better. It's not something that we sort of manipulate God by, I do my part, now he's got to do his part. No, it's we're exposed to the scripture, and it is God, it is breathed out by him. He is the source of it, and it has the power to save, to open eyes, to change my heart's my heart to change my desires, to transform me as I engage the word of God. As I read it, meditate, study it, memorize it, that's engage. That's why I love the word reading he used in word engage. Not just read, but read, meditate, apply it, 
We could even memorize it. It's when we are engaged with the Word of God. We are engaged with the God-breathed Word. It is breathed out. It has a transformative effect. When we engage the Bible, God engages us. When we engage the God-breathed Word, God engages our souls. He engages our hearts. So we continue because God is the source. It's from him. It's where the power for the Christian life is. Secondly, secondly, all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable. See, Paul is using arguments here. Now he uses one argument that's a little bit mysterious, right? It's breathed out. That's mysterious. The other two arguments are not mysterious at all. Continue in it because your mama taught it to you and mama was right because she followed God. So that's one argument. The second one is very, well, it's almost pragmatic. Continue in the word. Why? Because it has a practical benefit. It's profitable. The Bible does something for you. The Bible produces something in you. The Bible, it's, it's, there's a practical, useful benefit to engaging the Bible and being engaged by God. So Paul isn't afraid in the midst of a theological document, in the midst of a letter, he's not afraid to, to go practical and reveal what some of the benefit is, and that's what he does. He says the Bible is profitable, it's practical for at least four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness with the goal that the man of God, and man is being used generically for male or female, so that the man or the woman of God, that would be a fair translation, so that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible can accomplish these things so that you're competent for all of life, so that you're competent for what God has for your life. First of all, teaching. The Bible is useful for teaching. We all need to be taught. We all need to know God. And the only source where we will know God is through his scripture. Now, we can see him in creation, but we can only know him in a saving way through the scripture as it reveals him. So we need to be taught. In the Bible, verse 16 is profitable for teaching. It teaches us about God. It teaches us what Jesus Christ did for us. It teaches us about his grace, which it forgives and empowers us. It teaches us about his ways. How does he want us to walk and live out our life? It teaches us about the heart of God, what matters to God. It teaches us what God values and loves. It teaches us what God is doing in our world and wants to do in our lives. And that's why we devote a significant amount of time to teaching the Bible. Bible here when we gather on Sundays. That's why we talk about the importance of developing a reading devotional life in the scripture because it is profitable to teach us. It's why we apply it in our small groups because we want to be taught the word of God. We need to learn. We, we, we need to find out. We need to be um, encountering him through the God-breathed word. A disciple, the word disciple, we're all called to be disciples and make disciples. The word disciple means learner. Or follower. So the, a disciple is someone who's learning. Well, what are we learning? We're learning what God is like through the Word of God. So we're taught, we learn, we follow. It's profitable for teaching. And we need to look at it like our lives depend on it. We, I, I need to be taught. There's no one in this room that, that doesn't need to be taught by God, that doesn't need to learn more of God, that doesn't need to experience God. We need to read the Bible and be taught like our lives depended on it. I heard an illustration that stuck with me one time where someone said, you know, if, if some, if, if, 
we will listen and pay attention and be alert to a teaching based on how necessary we think it is, right? So when, you know, I don't find the agreement when, when I update with iTunes and they have like pages of, do you agree, did you read and agree this, uh, <clears throat> you know, just an opportunity to lie. No, I didn't read it. Uh, click. Uh, but, you know, it's just, I, I don't, that's not important to me. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what I've signed up for. When I got the new operating system, I don't know if I agreed to give away my firstborn. I don't know what. I just agreed. Whatever it was, I agreed. That's not very important to me, that fine print. But the illustration is, what if you were in an airplane with a few people and you get up in the air and the person gets up and say, this is a skydiving trip and I'm now going to explain to you skydiving, and I'm going to teach you, and we're putting a parachute on you, and you're going to jump out. How would you listen to the instructions? So, like, rip, what is it, where's the ripcord? When do I pull it? Can I pull it, like, right now? Do I have to do this? I mean, what I would be immediately, you would be listening to the instruction. My life depends on hearing this instruction and doing what they say, because I'm about to jump out of a plane into the air. I would perceive that not as the agreement uh, that I make when I update an app, I would view that as this is huge in my life. And so our lives depend on spiritual nourishment from the scripture. So we want to listen as though there's an urgency. These are Paul's last words. I don't know if you've ever heard someone's last words. I can remember the last words I had with my mom before she died. I didn't know she was dying. We had a phone call and then she was taken to the uh, doctor. And then the next thing I knew I was getting... I was getting a phone call that uh, she may not make it. So it went really fast. But I can remember the last words I heard her say. That's really important, someone's last words. These are Paul's last words. He's saying, Timothy, I'm gone. It's, it's, it's up to you and the others to carry this on in the power of the Lord. Here's what I'm saying. Be committed to the scripture. It's God-breathed. You need it for teaching, and so does the church. Teaching. There's an urgency. Secondly, reproof. It can be translated kind of refutation. It, it carries the idea of ref, refuting error. So the Bible is beneficial for Timothy as a pastor to know truth and to refute error. He tells him that. So the first two have to do with knowing truth, teaching and reproof or refuting error. The next one is correction. It's beneficial or profitable for correction. This one has to do with conduct. It means to set right. The last, first two have to do with teaching or understanding. The second two have to do with conduct. First two have to do with belief, second two have to do kind of with practice. But the word correction means to set right. It's a reference to conduct. It emphasizes the behavioral side. The breathed out word of God not only reveals him, but it reveals what path I'm on and if I'm off the path. Man, what good news is that? That God tells me when I'm off the path and gets me back on his path through the God-breathed word. It's good for correction. It sets us straight. And that is a good thing. Sometimes we hear the word correction and we think something really bad because we've been corrected by a self-righteous Christian. We've been corrected by someone who corrected us with a selfish attitude. It was for them and not for us. They didn't really have our best interest at heart. We've been corrected by someone in anger. So we, we can think a correction is very negative, but when God's correcting us, it's perfect, it's loving, it's gracious, it's telling a two-year-old not to run out in traffic and stick your finger in a light socket. It's for our good. It's to bring him glory. And so the word of God shows us when we're off the path and it adjusts us. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that you personally were reading the scripture and as you read it, you felt the penetrating conviction of God sort of setting you straight? 
saying, I'm calling you to be doing this. You're headed down this road. I'm calling you over here. Is that part of our lives? If I can't remember the last time that happened, then here's some really good news. God has that for us. God wants us to, to know him and experience it. His kindness adjusts us. He's a loving, perfect father who adjusts us for our benefit, corrects us that we may honor and glorify him. So it teaches us we all need that. It's for reproof. It, it discerns truth and error so that we don't believe false things, but we believe who God really is. It adjusts us behaviorally or ethically, tells us how to respond to him. And lastly, it trains us in righteousness. Trains us in righteousness. If you're a Christian, God wants to train you, empower you, encourage you, strengthen you, instruct you through his word. I was thinking about this, and some of you are thinking about this, so I'm just going to join you in your thoughts. Some of us are going to go home in a little bit and watch football today, okay? Just acknowledge that and enter into just uh, trying to connect with where everybody's at. And some of us are going to watch football, I will, and we're going to act like fools, because here's what we're going to do. We're going to watch the game, and we are going to critique, and we're going to judge. Some of us are going to yell out at people on the field who make a mistake, and we're going to be sitting in a recliner eating nachos, and we're going to be sitting there with queso dribbling down upon our overly rotund midsection, and the only exercise we're going to do all afternoon is 30 steps to the bathroom and 20 steps to the refrigerator, and we're going to sit in the throne of our recliner and judge people who are on a field doing what we could never do. If Romo blows it, Someone's going to judge him. He is doing what, oh, some of you are going to disagree with this, what only five, maybe ten guys on the planet can do. He's one of the ten best in the world at what he does. And we are going to... (laughs) For those of you listening to the recording, someone amened. I've preached now 40 minutes and no one's amened (laughs) the word of God. And I complimented Brother Romo and I got an amen. Welcome to Grace Church, (laughs) where we're bold for the wrong things, but uh, okay. So that's it. And here's what I was thinking about that. I was just thinking about, we have no idea what those guys do or how they got there, you know? I I listened to sports radio. I gave up political radio years ago, but I listened to sports talk radio, and uh, which is really no better. But uh, I can really respect guys on sports talk radio who are former athletes, who've done it, and are giving opinions, and who are critical. The guy I can't respect is the guy who's never done anything, and he's on there just, that guy, he can't do this, and he's that. I'm thinking, who are you? You're sitting in a chair for a living, popping off. That's what you do for a living. You're a windbag. That's your job. And you're going to tell me what this guy can do? Do you know whoever wins or loses in the two games today and whether your team wins or loses? Let me tell you, everybody you see on your TV today is world class. And they didn't just show up there. You can, you can play college ball and have no discipline and, and, and just be a freakish gift of nature. But nobody you're watching in the playoffs today is just a freakish gift of nature. Everyone there trains daily. 
They have a sleep regimen that's probably more scheduled than ours. They have a weightlifting and a running regimen that's beyond what anyone in the room has. They have a diet regimen, uh, maybe not the lineman, but most of them have a diet regimen where they have to be careful what they put in their, bo- uh, in their bodies. They have to say no. And some of them, those who are less gifted, have been saying no to things since middle school and high school and college because they were so focused. They didn't just show up one day. They're not your peer, okay, athletically. They're not your peer. Like, they just showed up there, and they're in the playoffs. They have trained in secret. They had suffered. And some of those guys running around on the field today are in severe pain, and the only reason there's there is because somebody shot them up before the game so they don't feel anything until after the game. And so they are playing in pain. I'm not making them out to be heroes. They're not, they're not, saving, they're not creating a cure for cancer or something like that. But they are, they're not your peer. They're not my peer. That I just like, I oh, like one of us I could criticize. They have trained. They have trained. How did they get there? They have trained. How does someone walk? How does someone receive righteousness? It's a total gift. It's declared over our lives. How does, that's justification. How does someone grow and become more like what Jesus has already declared us to be? That's sanctification. How do we grow in that? By training. And the word of God trains us. Let me tell you something. You find a Christian who's going through severe suffering, severe pain, severe grief, severe difficulty, and they're praising God, and I'll show you someone who is trained in secret for righteousness. And they didn't just show up one day and all of a sudden glorify God in the midst of difficulty. They have hidden God's word in their heart. They have meditated on God. They have prayed in secret so that they have been trained in righteousness so that they are complete and equipped for every good work. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about you do enough good works and then God has to bless you. I'm not talking about you do enough good works and then God will approve of you. No, I'm talking about if you're in Christ, God approves of you. You have the favor of God. Whether you read your Bible this week or not, you have the favor of God. You are forgiven in Christ. And from that position of approval, then God, through his God-breathed word, wants to train you in righteousness so that you will be ready, so that spiritually you're not the guy with nacho cheese on your belly in the living room yelling at people, but you're the person who has been trained and grown little by little through difficulty, through uh, through discouragement, through loss, little by little, God has produced something in you because you've had regular exposure, regular thought, regular meditation, memorization, and obedience to the scripture so that you are trained in righteousness, just like an athlete, just like an artist. If you go to an art exhibit and look at a beautiful painting, it's not someone that just woke up and one day just went like that and, oh, there it is. If you go to a concert and see a band play, someone who's musically wonderful, glorious, or sings, it's not like they just one day got up there and did that. There was training that you don't know anything about, some more than others, but there is a training to to reach. And here he says that we're trained through the word of God for holy living, for walking. We're trained by the word to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The gospel's gift Grace is a gift, growing is a gift, maturing is a gift, but God works that gift in us as we respond to his word. Listen to this brief little quote. Donald Whitney, who's a writer on spiritual disciplines, he said, uh, if we don't study the Bible regularly, he says, quote, we severely restrict the main flow of God's sanctifying grace towards us. 
Sanctifying grace is God's power to change us. So I'm going to say that because that's a little more accessible. We severely restrict the main flow of God's power, his gracious power to change us. So what's he saying? Work really hard and earn God's favor? Not at all. He said there's a river of grace out there. It's, 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 it, there is this river of sanctifying grace. There's this river of life change. There's this river of new heart, new affections. Uh, and it's flowing. And if you don't stand in the river, you have restricted the flow into your lives. But if you stand in the river, then the flow will affect you. Here, this is the river. It's the God-breathed word. And as we expose ourselves to it, God graciously works in us and changes us. This is not a works-oriented approach. It is receiving, and it is posturing ourselves for life change, to receive. Because you can't change your heart. It's still a gift from God. You can't mature yourself. It's still a gift from God. But God does that as we apply ourselves to his scripture. What's the practical result for a life that is taught, rebuked, or reproved, rather, corrected, trained in righteousness? Verse 17, and we're done. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God wants to prepare us for every good work, and he does that through the scripture. What are the good works? Whatever you do in your life. Whatever you do in your life. What is the practical result of of engaging the Bible? Well, God engages us so that we are equipped for every good work. We are equipped to endure suffering. We are equipped to pray. We are equipped to make wise choices. We are equipped to be a good friend. We are equipped to care for the needy. We are equipped to be compassionate with the grieving. We are equipped for every good work, complete, equipped for every good work. We are equipped to walk through depression. Reading the Bible doesn't mean that you will not get depressed or experience difficulties in life, but we will be equipped to walk through it, not avoid it, but walk through it. We will be equipped to forgive people who have harmed us. We will be equipped to be faithful in our work. I'm not talking just serving at church. I'm talking about where you will be at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning on your job. We are equipped for our jobs through training in righteousness the scripture. You'll be equipped to serve your clients. You'll be equipped to serve your boss. You'll be equipped to serve the employees that work under your authority. If you're a Christian, how are you equipped for that? Now, there may be some training. It doesn't tell you. The Bible doesn't tell you how to program a computer. I get that. But it tells you how to relate with those who do. You'll be equipped. It equips us for every good work. The Bible equips us to vacation well. See, sometimes we just think this is all about just difficult. No, the Bible equips us to party well. The Bible instructs about feasting. It tells us when and how to party. The Bible equips us. That's a good work, not as a total lifestyle, but in, in, in moderation. The Bible tells us how to do that. The Bible tells us how to take care of our bodies and how they, the Scripture equips us to, to manage God's temple. The Scripture equips us in spending our money, in giving sacrificially, in saving wisely. The Scripture equips us with a biblical mindset and worldview for how God thinks about money and so how we should think about money. The Scripture, the scripture equips us to appreciate art and music. Uh, It it teaches us what is truth, what is beauty, and what is goodness. The source of truth, beauty, and goodness is found in the Scripture. So it even equips us to appreciate good entertainment. 
I'm not talking about Christian movies or whatever. I'm talking about created by uh, how God, by common grace, reveals truth, beauty, and goodness, even through unbelievers. That's what I'm talking about. The Bible equips us, the, the Bible equips us and equips us to laugh loudly and boldly and to laugh at the right things and not laugh at the wrong things, to cry sorrowfully, to love. The Bible equips us to love our spouse. It equips us for every good work, loving our spouse, enjoying marital intimacy, fighting the lust of the flesh, leaving a legacy to our family. These are the things that matter in life. Raising the next generation, contributing to the one after that, to serve. I haven't even gotten to church. I intentionally haven't even gotten to church because you expect the preacher to say, hey, everybody, you know, remember that nursery announcement? Well, you should remember that nursery announcement. The Bible equips you for every good work, like serving in the nursery. But I didn't want to start there. I'm putting that at the end. The Bible equips us to be faithful church members, faithful brothers and sisters, to care for one another, to worship in community, and to reach our city with the gospel. Everything God calls us to do matters. And it is the scripture that trains us in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In Ephesians, Paul says that he has created us for good works. God has planned all kinds of works for us to do. And our equipping for those is through the God-breathed word. I heard somebody say recently, I've never known a mature Christian who didn't regularly engage God's word. And I've never known an immature Christian who did. I don't say that to shame anybody, but I think it's true. I'll never be equipped in righteousness to do what God wants me to do in my family, in my job, in my church, in my neighborhood, in my country, with my gifts, in my hobbies, in my free. I'll never be equipped to do everything God wants me to do in a way that glorify him if I have not been exposed to the God-breathed word. Because when I engage the God-breathed word, God engages me. We've got a few more weeks to talk about this, so today's application is super simple. It's just continue. Now, for some of you may be getting started, you've never read God's Bible, read read the Bible. Get on the city. I'm going to have an article to tell you some reading plans that you could pick. There'll be a bunch of them that you could look at if you would like to. It's an article I found on a website. I'm going to put that up there. But, But just continue. Start today. Just find a place. If you've never read, maybe read one of the Gospels. Start with Mark. It's simple. Start with John. Start with the Psalms. Pick any Psalm. And read a psalm a day this week, something like that. Just get started. And secondly, think about if there's a person you'd like to study with or a couple of people. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about this book, One-to-One Bible Reading, A Simple Guide for Every Christian. And we're going to encourage just basically an unleashing of sort of organic pairs and triads of people studying the Bible together in the church. That means twos and threes. Uh, Studying together, sounded weird, in the church. And uh, I'm going to be talking about this book in some more detail. And in a couple of weeks, I'm just going to say anybody who wants to stick around after church, I'm going to stick around a half hour and just walk through how you could do this with a friend. We'll have this book for you. We ordered it. They sent us the wrong book, but we'll get the right book uh, for you. And we'll have it available out at the table for you if you'd like to do it. But it's what we're going to be doing this spring for anybody who wants to in the church. I'm doing this right now. A number of us are. 
uh, just to sort of test drive it, and I'm having a great experience uh, with a buddy that I'm doing it with. And so uh, the other thing is this year we thought, boy, in terms of getting in the Scripture, what if we paired up and, and three-upped and uh, got together in small groups just to do it together, to read God's Word and to apply it to our lives, to make application as we understand His Scripture. So this year we're hoping to not only do it individually but do it together, and that'll be a, an additional supplement to our small groups if you'd like to do that. Um, and so we're going to be doing that, more, more to that. I'll talk about that more in the next two weeks. And then in a couple of weeks, I'll stick around after uh, for less than half an hour. Anybody who'd like to talk about how to do this, find a, find a partner and do it. The God-breathed word is profitable. The God-breathed word is from him, and it equips us for what he has for us. There is a river of grace flowing our way. It's sitting in your lap this morning, or it's on your smartphone this morning. And, and God says, come get in the river and allow the God-breathed word to transform, transform you this year. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that we have your word in abundance. And Lord, we, don't, we know you don't call us to feel guilty about that, that we have it and other people don't. But we know we call, you call us to steward that and to respond. And so we want to respond today to your scripture. We want to just continue. We want to believe. We want to read. We want to apply. We pray that you would help us to do so. I pray for every person in this church that is a Christian. I pray for every person that you would just increase our appetite. We've all had fits and starts. We've all started again and dropped off. Lord, everyone in the room knows what that's all about, the New Year's resolution that didn't last. We all got that. But, Lord, we want a change of heart that leads to a sustained lifestyle of training over months and over years and if you give us this long, over decades of study in your word. So we pray that you would help us do that. Lord, we don't want to be flashy. We just want to continue a day at a time. And we want to be taught. We want to be reproved from false doctrine so that we believe truth about you. We want to be corrected when we're on the wrong path so that we are walking with you. How gracious you are to point us on the right path to convict us. Thank you, Lord. And we want to be trained we want to be trained. We, don't, we, we want to be trained in secret so that when the great opportunities of life do appear, we're ready. Lord, when the great difficulties of life appear, we're ready. When the great surprises of life that catch us all off guard occur, we're able to navigate that with you, you holding us and walking with us. So Lord, thank you for your kindness that you speak to us. Thank you that you're gracious. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, thank you for those of us who have been unfaithful, that, Lord, you, you, you welcome us today to repent and to turn to you and say, help us, Lord. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy as we sing. Have mercy on us and help us this year. Lord, thank you that you're a father eager to tell us things about yourself in your scripture. Draw us in, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.